Okay, so I introduced Messianic uh, prophecy last week, and I mentioned these six passages from the Torah, uh, the Pentateuch, the first five books, the books of Moses. And um, I don't see John here this morning, but John said, hey, you're, you're going too quickly. Don't we want to read and talk about these passages? And so I thought, okay, we will take a little more time in covering them. So let me begin with a couple of questions. When we talk about canonical messianic prophecy, of what practical import is this study? In other words, if the scriptures didn't contain messianic prophecy, how would your and my Christian life be different? Uh, well, okay, but okay. So let, let, let me let me clarify the question because I what I'm what I'm asking is not whether Jesus comes or not. Okay, but we don't know that he's coming. Yes, Derek. It would diminish our hope. Yes. Explain a little further, please. Well, we have hope because we see evidence of the scripture that tells us what's going to happen, and we see proof that the word of God is true because he demonstrates that when he says something's going to happen, it does happen. And knowing that he's accurate 100% of the time, and he says something's going to happen that's not yet happened, we have hope in the fact that it's going to happen. Whether or not I understand it, whether I understand the timing of it, I still know that it's going to take place. Yes, yes. Go ahead. It also gives credibility because a lot of prophecies have already taken place. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, yes, Colin. The thing that magnifies God in such a way that you really appreciate who who's our heavenly Father. So it takes a little bit of that. Mm-hmm. It elevates the whole conversation. Okay, we. I'm thinking right along with you. Yes. But what we understand that we are no longer under the law. So if we didn't know that Jesus came, maybe we heard the message of, the, of Judaism. Mm-hmm. But will we understand that we are no longer under the law that we have salvation? Well, and specifically for the Jews, as they were looking forward, you know, it, is the law all that we have? Is that is that our future? And as Gentiles, does it apply to us? Yes. Okay, so those are your answers. Great answers. Um, yeah, I, I spent uh, some time thinking about that question, and these are some of the answers that I came up with, and I'm going to parrot what you've said. The Old Testament saints would suffer the loss of focus and hope. If they don't have messianic prophecy, then where where are we going? What's really going to happen? Um, is, there an, is there another age beyond our age? And, and is there an important person that will lead us into that age? We would lose something of the supernatural. Yes, something of, of the majesty of God, the wonder of, of, of his foreknowledge. We would lose something of providence, the guiding of human history to its God-designed destiny. Oh, man, what a delight to, to read the scriptures and follow the prophecies and understand that we're going somewhere, somehow, to the manifestation, to the revelation of this messianic person and then finally he's on he's on the scene and we recognize him because of the messianic prophecy without the prophecies 
uh, he would come incognito. We wouldn't get him. We would make uh, we would mistake imposters who self-proclaim themselves to be leaders of God's people, but not. The ministry of Christ would be less substantive. It would be diminished. Um, we would have a lesser appreciation for what Christ does because we don't have Isaiah 42, 49, 50, 52, 53, Isaiah 9, Isaiah 7, um, <coughs> Jeremiah 23, Ezekiel 34, 37, Psalm 22, Psalm 110, Psalm 2. We don't have those things, okay? So without them, well, okay, well, Christ was great, and, and certainly we, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't diminish his person, but we wouldn't appreciate it as much. Biblical history would be focused on humanity rather than the coming and the arrival of the God-man. Salvation would be less Savior-oriented. Matthew and other New Testament authors would need to rewrite their works absent the concept of fulfillment. There wouldn't be that concept. Um, the inspired Old Testament would be less read, less, less appreciated, less understood. That would be a great loss. Okay, so shall we study canonical messianic prophecy? Yeah, I think we should. <laughs> okay. So the first one is Genesis 3.15. We introduced this last week, and I think what Smith says is rather intriguing. It, it, he may go a little too far in what's being said in Genesis 3.15. Uh, he sees the battle as threefold between Eve and the serpent, then between their seeds, and then the paramount battle between Christ and Satan. Um, certainly even and the serpent but I think primarily what God is telling Satan and, and mind you he's talking to Satan with these words isn't that intriguing the first messianic glimmer in the Old Testament comes in the context of cursing the serpent hmm it's like God is saying I got you I've got a plan you're going down <coughs> Hmm. Interesting, isn't it? Um, do, 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 do. Uh, okay, well, let, let me go back here. So uh, we've talked about the Proto-Evangelium, the first good news of the promised Redeemer, but I think maybe we've misnamed this. Now just think along with me here. You don't have to agree with me. It's okay if, 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 if you like what, uh, what you're thinking about this. That's fine. But I think maybe this passage would be better phrased the proto-messianic prophecy, the first messianic prophecy, not the first gospel. It becomes the first gospel because of what Jesus does. But what is Eve told, or what is Satan told will, uh, that will take place? That he'll be defeated. That in the large canonical drama, he loses. Her seed will defeat his seed. Okay? So there's, there's spiritual warfare going on here. Not so much the gospel. Now, he'll do it by going to the cross. Um, 
God tells the serpent that he, Satan, will be humiliated and cursed, 314, and he, the Lord, will place enmity between the war camps of the apostate, both demons and humans, and the faithful, angels and humans. So this enigmatic text predicts the deadly conflict to be experienced by man and angels. Recorded in the canonical drama, blood atonement is not specifically mentioned. That's why I say Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel, well, it, we'll get there, but maybe not right here in this, in this verse. We know that Christ defeats Satan through his obedience to the messianic mission, which includes, of course, the redemptive and vicarious passion of the suffering servant. Yeah. Yes? Somebody, I don't know who I got this from, agrees with you about the messianic prom promise term because I have that written out in my, um, on the side here of that verse, so somebody else has taught that. Well, well wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> but much of what I say and you and I say doesn't come from us, does it? So we give credit to somebody else. Um, okay, now let's go to the second passage. Turn to Genesis 9. And I talked a little bit, I think, with you last week. Did I say something about Genesis 9 to you last week? No. Okay, well, I thought maybe I had. So in this context, that's Exodus. In this context, we are post-flood. Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth and their wives have, uh, uh, it's not deboated, like deplaned. They've, uh, they've exited the boat, whatever that term is. Disembarked. Disembarked, thank, thank you. Something. Disembarked. 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 <laughs> okay. Um, and they've cultivated the field. Noah became drunk, uh, became exposed, and um, his grandson apparently saw that. Okay, so that's all of this um, in chapter 9. When Noah awoke, verse 24, from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, or excuse me, it was Ham, his son, and but he will go on to curse uh, his grandson. Cursed be Canaan, Canaan uh, in Hebrew. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Now, ask yourself, why is he called the God of Shem? Why is Yahweh, why is Lord, all caps, called the God of Shem? Because the promise will go through the line of Shem. Guess who will be a pro, not a progenitor, a descendant of Shem? Abraham. Abram. Yes. Okay, so blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Did you see anything here messianically? Maybe not. Okay, so turn to the Hebrew Bible, and you'll, you'll see it. 
So follow what Briggs says here. Briggs comments that this second prophecy arises in a context of a curse. Well, we've seen that in Exodus or in Genesis 3.15. Now, we're seeing a pattern here, aren't we? When people disobey, fall out of relationship with God, how does God respond? He responds messianically. Woo! Look at that! Whoa! When people disobey, how does God respond? He responds with his Messiah. <coughs> That's worth taking to the bank, isn't it? Wow. Okay, so let, let me show you how this is messianic. Um, Noah speaks not only his own determinations, but also the divine decree. In other words, Noah is saying something that's beyond Noah. It's divine. It's, it's, it's a divine curse that Noah pronounces. So then Briggs understands the pronoun he in the line, may God spread out Japheth or enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem. See the he in italics to refer to God, meaning that God will be Shem's portion and inheritance. His family will bear the true religion. Now, and Briggs wrote this wonderful messianic prophecy. Um, so did Delich. He wrote a wonderful messianic prophecy. There are a number of them. Um, they're kind of a passion of mine. Okay, so you're looking at chapter 927. The English versions of, of uh, Genesis 927 translate the he as referring to Japheth. May God enlarge Japheth and let him, Japheth, dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. Now, that's that's nice and that makes good sense. But where does Japheth dwell? He doesn't dwell in the land that Shem's that Shem dwells. You know, he moves toward Europe. Shem moves to the east, Canaan to the south, Japheth to the north and to the to the west. So he really doesn't dwell in the tents of Shem. Notice also that the three verbs in this verse, verse 27, um, blessed, let Cain be, or excuse me, I'm, I'm, I was in 26, verse 20, in 27, may God enlarge, let him dwell, and let Canaan be. These are, um, are all uh, what we would call imperfects, and if rendered similarly, they, we would read it this way. Let God enlarge Japheth, let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. In other words, God would be the subject of the first two verbs. Let God enlarge Japheth, let God dwell in the tents of Shem, let Canaan be his servant. Same construction. Identical construction, but we've translated it just a little differently. May God, and then let him, and let him, and or let him, and then let Canaan. You say you're confused. Okay, I'm going to try and clear it up. Both renderings make sense. Let Japheth dwell in the tents of Shem. That makes sense to enjoy the blessings given Shem by God. Or we could say, let God dwell in the tents of Shem. That is, let the Messiah come to his line because he'll come through the line of Shem. 
Abram. And, and Okay, so in verse 26 and also in verse 27, we are told that Canaan will be the servant of Shem. And, and guess who displaces the Canaanites with the, uh, uh, the conquest? The Shemites, the, the Israelites. Okay. There's also a word play here, and you can see it, uh, again, it's in the Hebrew. Uh, the verb to enlarge or to expand, uh, yaft, and then the name Japheth uh, from the same root. Uh, just a fun way uh, that, that Moses wrote us uh, about that prophecy and that, that curse. Okay, so, okay, look, before I go to the next prophecy, comments or questions? Or, or a question here. So in other words, what I see happening here in this verse is that God will dwell in the tents of Shem. He will bless it. He will be their portion. God will be like what Asaph says in Psalm 73. Whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth, there's there's nothing I desire more than you. Um, I, almost, I almost failed. I almost backslid. Asaph says in Psalm 73, and then I remembered the end of the wicked, uh, and so forth. Comment or question? Who does Japheth represent in the future? Uh, the English, the French. <laughs> uh, j- just, yeah, yeah, people in, in Europe. Okay. There's, there's probably a better, a better answer to your question, Linda, but I don't know it. Okay. Okay. So let, I'm going the wrong way. Let's, let's go then to Genesis 12. And the story of Abram begins, of course, in chapter 11, uh, with Terah, Abram's father. And then we get to 12. The Lord said to him, now, Terah and the family had all moved from Ur up to Haran, going upstream uh, and uh, of the Euphrates River. And the Lord said to Abram, go from your country, from your kindred and your father's house to the land I'll show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. We've seen all of this in the Abrahamic covenant. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. Man, this, we are on a roll here. This is the third passage that I believe is messianic, and it's talking about cursing. Hmm. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And uh, again, I'm, I'm quoting Hingstenberg. Um, I think he correctly sees this promise as, your, as originally given to Abram, then reiterated to Isaac and Jacob. We could turn to Genesis 18. We could turn to chapter 22, and then 26, and then 28. And so the promise to Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant, is passed on to his son and then to his grandson. Mm-hmm. 
Hengstenberg understands this to mean that the patriarchs expected their posterity to be the source of blessing to the heathen by introducing them to the privileges of this religion, that is, faith in the living God, faith in the covenant, uh, in the covenantal God. Let's see what Briggs says. He says that the elective grace of God is narrowing as we move along through these predictions. And I mentioned that last week. Uh, we start with with everybody. I mean, Eve and Adam, you know, they're the, the parents of the race, and all and everybody comes from them. So it's race-wide, and then we get to Shem, and then we get to Abraham, and then we're going to get to Jacob and find and, and more specifically Judah. And so we've got this cone. Uh, uh, this messianic prophecy cone being constructed for us. Nice observation, Mr. Briggs. Kaiser says that the word seed must be understood in some exclusive way for not all of Abraham's biological progeny are intended. But one, you know, the promise went through one of his seed. Kaiser notes that Abram rejoiced. Oh, boy. Uh, rejoice to see Messiah's day, John 8, in the offering of Isaac. Now, Kaiser takes it to be the offering of Isaac in, as recorded in Genesis 22, in which Abram rejoiced to see Christ's day. Maybe. Um, uh, maybe Abraham knew something that's not specifically stated. Um, but that's a great speculation. So the, uh, so the first three verbs here, look in chapter 12 and verse 2. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. Now notice, the last verb is an imperative, but it's treated like an indicative. Um, and in you, all the families of the earth, or excuse me, so that you will be a blessing at the end of verse 2. But it, it should read this way. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. Be a blessing. Okay, so Abram is given the promises of God. I'm going to make you a great name, a great blessing, great family, and all of that. So be it. Be a blessing. Now, the translators uh, changed the imperative uh, into a so that clause into a purpose clause or a result clause, which is fine, but it kind of lacks the punch of an imperative, doesn't it? Um, and, and again, grammatically, that's possible. Uh, grammatically, the imperative can function like the previous verbs. It just doesn't have the impact that, that, it, that looking at the imperative might have for us. Again, uh, I've noted the concept of cursing appears in these first three messianic prophecies. So, how is this messianic? Well, <coughs> through the son of Abraham, redemption will be offered to all peoples. And all peoples will have an opportunity to be reconciled <coughs> to the living God. So the blessing uh, of reconciliation to God comes through Abraham's seed. And Jesus becomes uh, 
the watershed person of history. Some believe and follow and are saved, and some disbelieve and, and deny and are lost. Some are blessed and some are cursed on the basis of their relationship to Jesus. Yes? I think we need to remember that all peoples of the earth that he's talking to are all peoples of the earth that are at that point heathen. But all those people that once knew the truth, all those peoples had ancestors that knew the truth. So as peoples and people groups kept rejecting God and going away from God, God is offering a way for them to come back periodically. He's (coughs) prophesying there's a way being made to bring the people groups back who have forsaken me, who have grown away from me, who are living apart from me. Yes. Thank you. Great observation. So to put this in terms of the canonical drama, the big question is, Are we going to reflect the glory of God and believe and trust? Or are we going to go our own way? Thank you very much. Um, I'll handle it from here. And that's the canonical drama. Satan said, nope, it's all about me. Not about you, God. I could reflect your glory, but no, it's going to be about me. Adam and Eve said, well, you know, God, God's a shifty guy. We can't trust him. So, uh, yeah, let's eat. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we are all asking ourselves the same questions. Um, okay, the fourth one, Genesis 49. So Jacob is in the process of blessing uh, his sons, and he goes through them. And not not every son uh, gets a handsome, uh, 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 what should we say, eulogy here. But look at what he says about Judah. Look at verse uh, 8. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Boy, you know, <laughs> Diana and I were uh, talking about our grandkids, and you know, why are why are siblings, you know, always uh, fit for conflict here? I'm, they're just outfitted for it. You know, they know how to get each other, and and of course we see that with our oldest uh, grandsons who are uh, living with us. Uh, your your brothers, but here Judah's brothers will praise him. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter, okay, here we go. Okay, here comes the messianic part. The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples and so forth. talks about the prosperity that Judah will enjoy. Um, In an allusion to this passage, Christ is called in Revelation, the lion from the tribe of Judah. Now, 
In, in 49.10, we have an interesting thing going on, and it's a textual issue. Um, as I read for you from the ESV, they have uh, until tribute comes to him, or as I put in parentheses, that which is his. Uh, the difference, as you can see, is an H. Let's see. Yes, so the H is in parentheses. In Shiloh, ad ki yabo. So Shiloh, you know, whether it has an H or not, that's, that's the difference in the textual reading. Uh, the NASB has until Shiloh comes, making Shiloh something of a name or a title. Uh, the NET, the, the Bible put out by Dallas Theological Seminary with its notes, until he comes to whom it belongs. This time I'm going to agree with the NET. I think that's the proper way to read it. Now, but Kibner helps us realize we can't be dogmatic about you know these textual problems, and, and that's a smart thing to say. Okay, <laughs> Shiloh is not elsewhere a biblical title of Messiah. So if we take it as a biblical title, it is only that here. Um, and it doesn't have any clear meaning. The alternative construction, until he comes to Shiloh, corresponding again, or it corresponds to no messianic event that we know of. Um, but an early variant, revocalizing, yields either till what, uh, till what is his comes, that is, till Judah's full heritage appears, or until he comes to whom it belongs. Is now, Christ? Is that what you're saying? Shall yes, yes. So, turn to Ezekiel 21. I know this is technical, and I'm going to hear about it on our ride home from church today. Can you record it so we can hear it? <laughs> <laughs> in Ezekiel 21 verse 20 uh, let me start at 25 and you O profane wicked one prince of Israel whose day has come the time of your final punishment thus says the Lord God remove the turban take off the crown things shall not remain as they are exalt that which is low and bring low that which is exalted in other words, God is about to depose a leader in Israel. A ruin, a ruin, a ruin, I will make it. This also shall not be until he comes, the one to whom judgment belongs, and I will give it to him. Going to depose this guy, but boy, do I have somebody special coming for y'all. Okay, that's messianic. And notice the phraseology the one to whom judgment belongs, I will give it to him. The one to whom it belongs. And this is an elaboration, um, we believe, and I'm putting myself with uh, one of the other scholars of the, uh, the uh, passage there in Genesis 49. To whom, uh, un, uh, to whom it belongs. Yeah, unto, uh, until, uh, to whom it belongs. And I think that to whom it belongs becomes the Lord Jesus. He is Judah's descendant, and he is the one uh, from between whose feet the scepter will not depart. 
Okay. Uh, the Septuagint sometimes is more messianic than the Masoretic text. That is, the Greek translation of the Hebrew text is sometimes more messianic. Um, they regard Shiloh as whose it is. That's interesting. And it goes, of course, along well with Ezekiel 21.7. Kaiser also agrees with this, but Briggs does. Smith thinks the most likely meaning is Shiloh. Um, a personal title. So scholars will vary on this, and that's that's to be expected. But we want to check the various op- the, the various possibilities, and then go back to the text and see what makes sense uh, in the context. Um, in Jeremiah 48 and 49. Now this uh, goes back to what um, Kaiser says. I believe, um, <clears throat> a destroyer will annihilate Moab and certain surrounding regions um, and cities will also suffer punishment. So if, if, as we look at the Ezekiel 21 passage, uh, and then we can also understand Jeremiah 48 and 49. And uh, you're right, this is getting technical. Let, let me keep going. <clears throat> okay, number five. Let's go to Numbers 24. And this is uh, so unexpected. So we are in the section of the book of Numbers 22 to 24 regarding Balaam, the false prophet. He is, he is not a, a prophet of Yahweh. He's a false prophet. And he's been hired by Balak of Moab to curse the Israelites who are camped at his border, the border of, of Moab. Balak hires Balaam to come and curse these people um, to give Balak the upper hand um, and to defend his, uh, his homeland. And as you know the story, uh, Balaam <clears throat> uh, goes to the, to the prophetic act and only comes up with blessing for Israel rather than cursing Israel. Isn't this significant? You know, we keep seeing in messianic prophecies and passages the presence of blessing and cursing. And that should, that should stay with us because messianic prophecies will either bless people or curse people, depending on their reception of the Messiah. You know, that concept ought to stay with us. So we have then, um, starting in verse 15 of 24, <clears throat> Balaam's final oracle. He took up his discourse and he said, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. Now, I have to believe these uh, three chapters, 22, 23, and 24, are the only time his eye was actually open to divine truth. Okay, But it was during this time. I see him. Oh, wow. This is so good. I see him, but not now. 
man, uh, are um, shivers running up and down your spine? I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. And it shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down the sons of, of uh, Sheph. Edom shall also be dispossessed. Uh, Seir also, his enemies shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly. One from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of cities, and so forth. Now, the reason I was perplexed by an earlier slide, I see as I put it out of order, it should go after this one. But let's go forward. I see him, but not now. I behold him. Other passages with a star. Well, what are they? Well, who was the star The star of the morning, the morning star? Lucifer, the shining one. Hmm. What does he have to do with this star? The star um, that shall come out of Jacob. Well, there's going to be a battle. There's a battle going on. There's spiritual warfare going on between this star and that star. Uh, what else do we have? In Daniel 12, um, the people with insight, people who are leading others to righteousness are like stars forever and ever. Of course, in Matthew, 20, in Matthew 2, we have the natal star. In 2 Peter 1.19, we have Christ called the morning star. And in Revelation, the bright morning star. So uh, there's a conflict among the stars. You know, there's a... Uh, there's a, a, a battle in, in the heavenly host. And Balaam uses this imagery. Oh dear. Uh, so, um, if, if, I, if I go over, raise, yeah, raise your hand. Um, 